Mary and Nancy, I, I'm so thankful to have them back. They were here briefly and I didn't get a chance to connect with them and it was busy and I'd asked if they'd come back and they did. And then, bless Nancy's heart, she asked Micah, what's Rob teaching on? Well, he just finished 18 and he went through this and the next one's gonna be blind Bartimaeus because that's in succession and he's gonna be teaching on that. And to Micah's credit and also Nancy's credit, I've been studying that, I'm, I'm ready to teach on it. Uh, I had all the notes ready, and um, I was in my office at about 7.40 this morning, um, and the Lord put it on my heart that I have to take Wednesday night's message um, and expand it to present to you, um, and there's a reason why, and so I did it first service, and Terry and Nancy prepared for Blind Bartimaeus, and they did that whole video at the end. Wasn't that precious? I was moved by it, and then I thought, Lord, you're so good. Because, you know, I switched up on them, but there isn't a sermon I could have given that was more profound than what Terry and Nancy did with that, that song. It just encapsulated the entirety of that passage. And, and when, when Terry shares his testimony, and, you, and he even said it as I was giving him a hug, I, I, I'm that leper, I'm that blind man. He means it, and, and it was, I, I didn't see a dry eye, it was just precious. So thank you, Terry and Nancy, for your love for our fellowship and your faithfulness to serve. You guys rock. All right, now it's time to get in the word, and you guys are wondering, well, if we're not doing Matthew 8, or excuse me, Luke 18, what are we doing? Open up to uh, Psalm 1, if you have a Bible, if you don't, uh, raise your hand, the folks are walking down the aisle, they're labored with this stack of books, they need help, raise your hand, take it from them, comfort them, and encourage them, and if you don't own a Bible, and that landed in your hands, you're welcome to keep it. Um, we have some folks that collect them, and then sell them, and they've made a living doing it, it's uh, So as you know, I don't immediately begin with the study. Over here to the left, we need more up here. They're desperate. You miss them. Uh, one, two, three, third row and fifth row. Uh, I'm back there, sixth row. God bless you, I see your hand. So um, as you know, I do an introduction and, and before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, I wanna tell you how this came about. Um, I, I was, I'm, I'm moved, as a lot of you know, uh, by our founders, and, um, and I'm, I'm discouraged by the lack of, of knowledge and understanding that the pulpits in America have to the gift we've been given in a nation in the 6,000 years of recorded history, where this is the first time in recorded history, 244 years, where we have a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, created, acknowledging a creator in our birth certificate, and then there's a word that's in our birth certificate, our Declaration of Independence, that is so critical because it is the one word that actually started the war with, um, with the British Empire. And, um, and that one word caused us to go to war with the greatest superpower on the face of the earth to take 13 independent colonies and unite themselves uh, to, to contend and to fight for this word. And this word is critical. And a lot of folks have seen this word and they're not really sure how to process it and what it means. And if I were to take three by five cards, hand them out and say, please give me the definition of this, you would all have a different definition. 
But our founders were very clear on the definition of this word because not only had they gone through the first great awakening and the second great awakening, uh, but they had also been highly educated in the scriptures and the vernacular of the scriptures were very present. The very first public school act in America in the 1600s was called the Old Satan Deluder Act, where they realized they needed to teach their children to read so they couldn't be uh, uh, put in delusion by, by Satan because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God, so they wanted children to be able to learn. And they understood the value of that. And our founders were, were uh, unbelievably dedicated. And they had also had uh, ethics. Ethics is the study of doing good. And they studied the classics. And one in particular that we no longer address in our schools, but we used to have it. And every junior higher would have already gone through this book. It was the book on ethics by Aristotle. And all the founders understood the book of ethics in relation to Aristotle. And, and when they looked at the term and the, the word that I'm, I'm saying to you is one you already know, it's happiness. And, and it means so much more than I think what we think it means. And it's critical because it's the reason why you're sitting here in a nation for 244 years in freedom because of that, that commitment to happiness. But mankind is lost in understanding what happiness is. And Aristotle understood what happiness was. The scriptures long before Aristotle ever walked the earth declared what happiness was. And yet it's one of those things that is a, a, in a hierarchy of goods, it's the highest of all goods. And so we're gonna take a look at that today. And we're gonna do it through the very first psalm, psalms are music, uh, words put to music. And the psalmist wrote Psalm 1, and he began with a word called eshed, which means, oh, how happy. It means happy is or happiness to the person who. Eshed, oh, how happy. And the way we translate it in the English is blessed. Even on the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, blessed are you, it means, oh, how happy are you. And this word happiness is critical to the furtherance of Christendom. It's critical for us to be fruitful to understand what happiness is. And so with that, we're going to take a look at Psalm 1, and I'm going to march you through a little bit of American history, take you through some Aristotle, come back to some scriptures, and we're also going to memorize a scripture this morning. So we have a lot of work to do, so let's get busy, people. Uh, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, please. I'd like us, we don't normally do this, but I'd like you to read out loud with me, and we're going to begin with Psalm 1 with the word blessed, which means a shed, which means oh, how happy. And so start, I'll begin and continue with me. Are you ready? Here we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And Lord, as you've given us this concept of a shed, happiness, Lord, I pray this day, Holy Spirit, as you lead us into all truth, that it would be ingrained in our heart and our mind in the depths of our soul that we would glean from what you have for us, that we would apply it to glorify and honor you. And in so doing, we would find this happiness. And so, Lord, thank you. We commit this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. 
one of the things the Lord put on my heart at the beginning of the year is we did 52 memory verses uh, previous year, and a lot of you did great, but I wanted to make sure that all of us would at least have um, some verses memorized. And I want to try to get 24 verses memorized uh, by every member of the congregation between you know, this month and the end of the year. And to do that, I have to make them real small. So I'm going to do seven to ten words in each of the memory verses. And uh, you're doing very well. I threw it out there on Wednesday night, and I was blessed to hear uh, the response. And I'm going to see if second service has our initial memory verse logged into their skull. Uh, it's 1 Timothy 6.6. 6, and let me just, I'll give you the first word now, and then we'll do it from there. You ready? 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. Now that you had some of the folks who did their homework kind of refresh you from the limited amount of work you did, maybe you're prepared to do it together. Ready? 1 Timothy 6, 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. And we had an illustration, we had a teaching on it, and then we concluded with it, not once, but two, two Sundays and now you own that. That's yours. I've hidden thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We have a new memory verse. This is Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13. And I'm not even going to make you memorize the entirety of the verse because I want to keep it at seven words or seven to ten words. And so I'm going to give this to you. And here it is. And all you have to memorize is the first seven words. Happy is a man who finds wisdom. Can you do that? Yeah. Try it. Well, yeah, but you're looking at it. Go back. There we go. Pro Do it again, please. Where is that located? Proverbs 3.13. What is it again? Okay, what was 1 Timothy 6.6? 6, 6? Now. Okay, now this is a tricky one. Proverbs 3.13. You're doing great. So much better than first service. <laughs> happy. It ties in with what we're studying, so you're going to be able to retain it. You're going to have an illustration. You're going to have a teaching on it. You're going to commit it to memory, and it's going to bless you all the days of your life. God's word doesn't return void. And so when you see this idea, happy is a man who finds wisdom. The scripture goes on to say, and the man who gains understanding. And, and the key is Happiness. As I said earlier, this word happy was critical to our founders when they gave us the Declaration of Independence, which is our birth certificate. And in 1776, which was a critical time, America was being oppressed, or the colonies were being oppressed by the British Empire. They were losing their ability to raise their families and to find freedom in this idea of liberty. And it was this gathering of these 13 colonies to contend with this great superpower and they came together for principles to guide and to lead them. It actually won a remarkable battle. Uh, it was in March of 1776. And as the winter was thawing, uh, the British had occupied Boston and the Americans had Dorchester Heights. And they knew that uh, the British, as soon as the snows thawed, they would march up and conquer their, their high ground because the Americans didn't have any artillery in a a bookseller, a 26-year-old bookseller from Boston by the name of Henry Knox uh, had read a book on artillery. He was a large fellow. 
And he came to General Washington. He said, I know how to get artillery to the Continental Forces. Washington said, how would you do that? And he said, well, in Fort Ticonderoga, they had abandoned all the artillery. I can bring it over the mountains, cross the lakes, bring it over the mountains because of the snow and we can, and it was one of the greatest engineering feats uh, to, to date. And sure enough, he did. They'd given him the resources to do that. He got all the artillery. It was, uh, Boston Harbor was covered in fog. He was able to get the artillery up to Dorchester Heights where the fog was over the harbor of Boston, but up on Dorchester Heights, it was a full moon night similar to what we'd had in these past couple days where it was completely clear. They assembled all the artillery. When the fog lifted, the British realized that the Americans now had artillery. Within a day or two, they were going to march up to Dorchester Heights and take over and destroy the Continental Army, but it was through that that shelling that they did on Boston that the British evacuated and the Continental Forces had a victory. They were so excited that they went into 1776 and they wrote this Declaration of Independence um, and their birth certificate. And, And in that Declaration of Independence that they wrote upon the birth certificate goes down further to begin with, we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among those being life, liberty and the pursuit of A critical word because it was that word that caused them to go to war with the British Empire. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then they would go on to write in that same structure. They would say that to secure these rights, these inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Happiness was critical to the founders. They wrote that in this birth certificate declaring independence from the British Empire and it took them into war with the greatest superpower on the face of the earth. They valued happiness. Now they put it in order, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because happiness and liberty are scarce little value if you're dead. So they wanted man to live. And this idea of liberty is freedom in a sense. But happiness was further than that. All of these founders had been educated in Aristotle and they looked at that word happiness far beyond what we compare happiness to be. Aristotle um, was a philosopher and he was a brilliant man in many, many aspects. And interestingly enough, he had established this Echomedian ethics before Christ had ever walked the earth. And yet, the Lord would see fit to use Koine Greek as a language for the New Testament because it was the language of the greatest philosophical thinkers of all time. It was also the language that had dominated the entirety of the known world at that time. For example, in our own English language, we have one word for love, but the Greeks had three, actually more, but three that encompassed over 90% of the meaning, eros, agape, and phileo. And there's also storge. For us, we have one word, love. And it doesn't mean the same thing. I love my wife and I love my job. You can use the same word, but it doesn't mean the same thing. If it does, you have a problem. (laughs) So when the Greeks had this philosophical language that they would deal with the most complex thoughts, it was a hierarchy of understanding as Aristotle would say, an unexamined life isn't worth living. And so the founders understood that if we're going to have a foundational education that would allow us with scriptures, we have to understand critical thought. 
And so they, they had educated themselves in Aristotle. And Aristotle, when he started to look at this idea of goods, goods are critical. There are things in this world that are good, things in this world that are good. And what makes something good? Aristotle would say, a thing is good if it functions well according to the purpose for which it was made. Let me repeat that. A thing is good if it functions well according to the purpose for which it was made. You and Everett have been fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in his mother's womb. You've been made for a purpose. That purpose is to glorify God. He has created good works beforehand. You're his poema, his workmanship, and he has created you under these good works. Now, if you operate outside that for which you were created, that's not good. A thing is good if it functions well according to the purpose for which it was made, according to the intention of its maker. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator, For these reasons, life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, for this reason, governments were instituted among men by that supreme power that you can secure your happiness. And what is happiness? Well, we have goods, and goods are important. A good, clearly, is something that functions according to what its maker intended for it. What is beautiful? Hmm. Beauty in the highest form, beauty is the highest form of the good. So, you get some rinky-dink Toys R Us guitar and give it to your child with plastic strings. It'll make noise, but it'll be real hard to tune it. And you compare that with a Martin guitar that you pay thousands of dollars, it's made by craftsmen's hands, and the one moment that that hand goes over those strings, the whole room is captivated. One is more beautiful than the other. And this idea of beauty is the highest form of good for which that that good was intended to operate. It's beautiful when the master's intended it to operate in that capacity. And you're beautiful when you're operating in that capacity and you're ugly when you're not. When you lie and you cheat and you steal and you backstab and, and you're critical and you're mean and caustic and bombastic, it's just not beautiful, it's painful, it's ugly, yes? But to meet someone who's beautiful I'm not talking about just physically, and there's something special about that. I mean, people know how to take care of of their facade, and they do well with it. And as Chuck Smith used to say, if the barn needs painting, paint it, and and they, they know how to paint. They make it look good. But there's also the beauty of character operating in the context for which God has designed you. And this is what's interesting. The work that produces happiness is essentially human. There's no other creature in all of God's creation that can produce happiness because it's essentially human. You see, we call things good when they serve the purpose for which they were made. We call things good when they serve the purpose for which they were made. Now, the good of a cup has to do with what somebody else fashioned. The good of a dog is securely and chiefly, secured chiefly through the natural gifts and instincts, but the good of a human being, the good of a human being depends primarily on choice and the formation of virtuous character. You see, unlike all the other creatures in God's creation, you have the ability to choose. And every day you make choices is where you get that word character. Character means etched, engraved. It's like a tattoo. 
And every choice you make develops that character. And conversely, every choice you make that isn't good produces an ugly character. And that's up to you. And happiness will be dictated upon what you etch into your life. And the scriptures would focus on this. There's a hierarchy of goods. If the idea for us is to pursue that highest good, that we function according to the way which God made us, and that the thing that has been created is operating in its context for which it was created to do, it's good. But there's a hierarchy of goods. And the way Aristotle would design it or define it is he'd say, look, there's, there's, there's a bridle maker. Since we were talking about rodeo and horses, a bridle, which is the bit in a horse's mouth, you pull to the right, the horse goes to the right, pull to the left, the horse goes to the left. And, and this has been designed and, and there's someone who needs to make this and they make it out of metal and it moves this, this majestic beast with a small piece of metal and the pull of a master's hand, left or right. So bridle making. You want the bit to be made proper, you don't want to hurt the horse's mouth, you want it to be able to have the force and the, the tension where necessary, so the bridle making is a good. And we, we admire someone who can make a bridle. But if the bridle maker is not working and doesn't produce, then he's not operating the good for which he was intended. That's not good. So he makes the bridle, and the bridle is higher than the bridle maker because that's the piece that is going to operate the beast, and that's good. And then you need to, you can have a bridle, but if you have someone who doesn't know how to ride a horse or how to operate a bridle, so horsemanship is a good that's higher than the bridle itself, and the bridle is higher than the bridle maker. And now you have horsemanship. And so someone knows how to ride a horse, but what's the purpose of riding a horse? Well, to have a cavalry. Back in Aristotle's day where they were warring people, They had a cavalry and that would be able to invoke your will on another nation and to conquer other nations. And so the horsemanship would would result in, in a cavalry. And that's a higher good. And that cavalry had a higher good which would result in victory. But is victory the ultimate good? There is a hierarchy of good, but is it the ultimate good? No, the ultimate good to Aristotle and to God himself and all of us is happiness. Happiness. Now there are things in life that are good. And we're going to take a look at a few of those. They're good. They're really good. One in particular that's really good, and I I like it a lot, is wealth. Wealth is good. It's the abundance of valuable material possessions, uh, valuable material, uh, the abundance of valuable material possessions or, and I lost that, but you know what wealth is. I don't have to describe it. Wealth is owning things. Wealth is having money. I got to tell you, it's really good to have a positive balance in your bank account. I I know that's shocking because you live in California, but I'm saying a positive balance (laughs) in your checking account. It's nice not to be overdrawn, to have money left over at the end of the month. No? (laughs) Nobody wants to be rich in here. Wealth, wealth is good. Wealth does amazing things. Wealth is the accumulation of resources. We look at it as our bank account. Uh, you've, you've heard me say this before, but I remember, and this is a true story, I was walking into a Starbucks early in the morning, getting ready to go to my Friday morning men's study, and as I was walking in, a young fellow in his mid-twenties, he was ripped, but he was disheveled, he'd been sleeping out in the streets, but he, you know, he was healthy and he looked good, but he was dirty. As I walked past him, I knew what he was going to do. And as I walked past him, he says, can I have some money? And I looked at him, I said, I will give you money if you can answer one question. 
He's like, what? I go, what's money? He goes, oh, it's what you need to buy stuff with. I'm like, no, sorry, man. And I walked in. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, wait, what is it? And I said, since you want to learn, I'm going to buy you breakfast. Come on in. And we're in the line. He's like, what is it? I go, no, no, not until we get some food. And we get some food and we sit down. He goes, what is, what is money? I said, all right, you ready? He goes, yeah. I go, money is a representation of the contribution you've made to society. You've made no contribution, thus you have no money. Dude. (laughs) And I said, but I have made a contribution, I have money, and by my generosity, I'm buying you something by the effort that I have put forward. Now, that contribution to society, you may be able to flip hamburgers at minimum wage, or you may have gone to school for 10 to 15 years to be a doctor to do brain surgery. One brings a greater value to a society. Both are important. It doesn't mean that you're not equal. You're equal in dignity, but not in capacity. The person who flips burgers is good at flipping burgers, and we need that, and that's a necessary arrangement, and we want to remunerate you for that, but there's a lot of people who can do that, and it doesn't require 15 years of education. But the person who's front-loaded and educated themselves and put restraint on evil in order to pursue excellence, they, they provide a larger contribution to society. Thus, we value that more. Understood? And so wealth is good. But wealth for wealth's sake is not good. If you wake up every day and you teach your children to pursue money, that's a problem. And the, and the tragedy is in the church, we have elevated that to a whole new Height. Parachurch ministries, nonprofit organizations know how to milk you for every dime because there's not a bigger stick to hit somebody over the head with than God. And we start to work people. And any of you who have foundations or any of you who have money, you know that you have been scammed by those who profess themselves to love the Lord. And, and I sincerely believe that some of the people that are seeking that money don't believe themselves to seek money. They're, they're wanting to do good, but somewhere in there, money just ruins it. Yes? It ruins ministry in some regards. That's one of the reasons why we don't pass an offering back. I don't want to talk about it unless the text is talking about it. I don't want you to think you're in charge of anything in relation to money. You're giving money for the sole purpose of allowing God to be first in your life. Beyond that, whatever comes in the bag is irrelevant to me because he's never let us down in meeting our needs and the riches of Christ. And if you think giving is such that you can get your name on a plaque, go somewhere else. You get nothing. But the satisfaction of putting God first and to have your life aligned with his So wealth for its sake is dangerous because if you pursue this good, and money is good, it can do some amazing things. It can buy a a bed but not sleep. It can buy a house but not a home. It can buy sex but not love. There's some things that money can buy, but money is an accelerant. It just makes you more of what you already are. It doesn't solve problems. It can take care of symptoms but never the problem. And so wealth is good, but it's not the highest form of good and it shouldn't be what you commit your life to. And I want to take this great philosophical thinker who's kind of gone off the radar and actually he's gone over the edge lately, but he had something very profound to say in Guidepost Magazine, and this is what Jim Carrey said. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Right? So wealth was one of these goods that they thought was a high good, and it is a high good, but it's not the highest good. The other one that Aristotle looked at that he didn't equate or make equal with happiness was this idea of pleasure. 
I like pleasure. Pleasure, desire, inclination, frivolous amusement, state of gratification, a source of delight. Pleasure is good, yes? Like a a warm hot tub on a cold winter night. That's good, yeah? I like it. Somebody in the church, um, they're a chemist, and they mix red wines to come up with a varietal, um, a blend, and they say it's better than Inception, which is this, I think it's Inception. It's a real high-end wine. And, and they said, have you ever had it? I said, yes, I have. And some of you are going, well, pastor drinks. I, I didn't inhale. It's okay. <laughs> and and they, they put on the label, they made this wine for us. They put on the label, because uh, they just heard the message on 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, now... They, they put on the label from the, the memory verse of 1 Timothy 6, 6, now. So they put on the word contentment, and they said, you can go home and have a glass of contentment. And it, and it you know, it's, it's, it's pleasurable. It's pleasurable. A touch of, 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 of your spouse's hand. A hug in a time of need. Um, somebody brought up a little Scottish terrier to church for service and, and he nuzzled, that just, it was pleasurable. Just a little puppy, just something about a little puppy. I just love him. There's, things are pleasurable. But fle- pleasure for the sake of pleasure, though pleasure's good, it's not the highest good because if you pursue pleasure and your whole life is focused towards pleasure, it'll do a number on you. That's Keith Richards. There isn't anything that he's ever withheld in his life. And, and pleasure for pleasure's sake really affects your organs, your family. If that's what you're pursuing in life, it's an empty pursuit. Aristotle understood it. The Lord more importantly understood it, or I should say he outlined it, allowed us to see it. And our founders grasp it. So you have wealth, pleasure, they're both good, but to seek that for that sake is dangerous. If you educate your children in school, look, go after wealth. No, go after, go after pleasure. No, go after, it's dangerous. The third that is close, it's a high good, but it's not the highest, is honor. And this is, this is one of the closest because honor is one of those things that we really value. Honor, to show respect, good name, reputation, to confer distinction on. We want, we want people to honor us. Why? We don't want to be honored by bad people. We want to be honored by good people because in a sense, to pursue honor uh, in order to justify that we're good. When good people honor us, it emphasizes we're good people. But if you're going after honor for honor's sake, that's dangerous. We're free to choose. We make choices in life. And if those choices are such that people are moved by the accomplishments we've made and the character we've established and they want to honor us, that's great. But to go out and want to get people to honor us is dangerous. You know, I was thinking about the old joke about the two brothers. They were the most heinous, evil, wretched people in the entire community. They were hated by everybody. They cheated everyone. They had lied. They were abusive. There wasn't a single thing that they'd ever done that, that was worth anything. And the one brother dies and the other brother has lost the only companion he had in life and he goes to the priest and he says, I want you to honor my brother. I want you to tell everyone in the community he was good. And he said, 
I'm not doing it. There wasn't anything good in your brother's life. He says, there's a million dollars in it for you. The priest says, okay. So the funeral comes and he begins to do the eulogy of his brother and he begins by telling everyone all the awful things he ever did, what an awful human being he was. He goes through the whole thing. He says, but compared to his brother, he was a man of honor. (laughs) We do evil things and we want good people to justify us and make us feel good. And I, I, I was deeply moved by this concept of honor because it's good to honor people but it's not good to seek honor for honor's sake and as we just went through this it was it was revelatory for me eye-opening I believe it was a cultural dynamic shift in America I thought it was profound and it was brought not by a minister not by a pastor not by a parachurch ministry or an evangelist it was brought by an atheist socialist and he rocked it You had all these people gathered wanting to receive honor from a, for a bowling trophy. There's the Golden Globes, and they do six events a year. They do the Academy Awards and the Golden Globes and the Emmys, and they want to you know, regale themselves on how remarkable they are. And they want to be honored. They pursue honor in order to justify that they're good people, even though they, they put out trash, and not, not all of them, but most of the time it's just trash. And they, they, they climb over dead bodies to get to the top, and they keep all the secrets, and they, 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 they're duplicitous, they're hypocritical, and they want us to believe that they somehow, and you think Ricky Gervais is the guy that did it, somebody predated him, and it was phenomenal, I, I only took the part that was clean, and he still says GD in it, but you got to watch it. This, this is Jerry Seinfeld. He's receiving an award. Check this out. Roll it. I'm just, you know, sick of all these actors, and, you know, I don't know why we're so fascinated with actors in this culture. They haven't got a thought in their stupid bedhead hairdo mini brains. Why... We must honor this man, why? He pretended to be Bob Johnson. (laughs) He's a genius, I tell you. It's genius what he's doing. Playing dress up and pretend is not genius, ladies and gentlemen. It's not genius. (laughs) Roll the cameras, put on these clothes, stand there, ready? Say what we told you to say. (laughs) Fantastic. He did it. Give this man a huge golden trophy. He's a goddamn genius. Walking down the red carpet in these ridiculous outfits like they're senators from Krypton. It's just so stupid. But what can I do? I have to thank HBO. I have to. This, this is the world in which they live, where they elevate themselves and then they have to assure themselves that what they do is good, so they have to put on these, honor, these banquets to receive honor to justify that they're good. But honor, interestingly enough, the way that Aristotle looked at it, he pointed out, he said, heroes never refer to themselves as such. The nature of a hero is to exhibit bravery in moments no one sees or hears with no expectation of acknowledgement, but always with hope at the forefront of each action, and yet each unseen and unheard heroic action pushes us all forward for the best. 
When the flag went up at Mount Sarabachi in Iwo Jima, and they took that iconic picture that sold more war bonds than any other time in the history of World War II, they began to parade these men that were part of the raising of the flag all around the United States to sell war bonds. And one in particular was a Navy corpsman, or as President Obama would say, corpsman. And, and this Navy corpsman, this Navy corpsman traveled uh, the country and raised war bonds. And the war ended and he went in to be a mortician and he'd be, he just be, fell into obscurity. And every year they'd call trying to trace down the survivors of the raising of the flag on Mount Sarabachi and he would tell his children, hang up the phone. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know what was going on, but they, they grew up never knowing anything about their father. And when he died, his oldest son went up into the attic and found the box with the two silver stars, the iconic pictures, the award from the President of the United States, all of these things. And he never knew that his father was the man in the picture on the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima. But his dad would always say whenever he'd regale stories of World War II, he'd say the only heroes are the ones we left. I wasn't a hero. I lived. You see, people want to be honored because they live with the secret that their life is anything but good. And they want the world to assure them that they're good. And so you pursue honor and that's dangerous. It's not good. The Bible says sit in the back and then let others bring you forward, but don't seek to sit in the front seat. The Bible says if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a servant of all. The word servant is doulos, bond slave, under rower. You don't even have a name. We did an event Saturday night for all the volunteers in the church. Pastoring the church for 20 years, I think that's the first time we've really done anything for the volunteers. A lot of you think, how cruel is that? You know what? They don't like it. The volunteers in this church are organic. They don't do it for the praise of men. None of them were there going, well, it's about time you recognize my efforts. <laughs> not, a, not a single one of them. And we have an amazing training program for servants. Because Gladys Alward said, the true test of a servant is how you act when you're being treated like one. And, and we're really good at equipping them to be servants from that definition. And yet... As I stood in front of them, all I could tell them was that when Michelle and I were going through a tough time in the church and there was division and struggle, we just said, God, would you send us, the Bible says a harvest is plentiful, the labors are few, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest, he'd send labors. Would you send labors of like mind that, that are not contrary and they're pleasant and they have servants' hearts? And I, I, was, I was overcome with emotion Saturday night, looking out at the sea of people and realizing how good God was to answer that prayer. And every one of the ministries that were developed were never by cajoling and having to prop people up and make them feel good. They were organic. They just wanted to do it. And they didn't come to seek honor, but it was good because it's important at times for people who've touched your life to say thank you. Thank you is an honor. Thank you for serving me. And, and the times that they, they've been overlooked, and they go and they clean a room and to come in only find it dirty. And they don't get embittered. They, what they do, they do is unto the Lord. And the ministries that have been developed by servants. And that's what's amazing is those are the folks that are elevated. It's the others that come in and say, you know what? I want to preach. You need to step aside and I want that pulpit. And I, I have no doubt you're a better minister than me and you're a better preacher than me. God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. You're probably way better at it than I am and a better expositor of, of, of the scriptures than I am. I have no doubt. But God put me here. I don't know why he put me here. 
confounds me as well. But if you want to come here, first of all, I think he, the affirmation that I'm where I'm supposed to be is the fact that folks are serving, and I never asked them to. Yeah, clap for them. I was blessed by that. The point is simply this. Don't seek honor for honor's sake. Don't seek honor for honor's sake. It was in the book of ethics that Aristotle wrote. He said, every art and every inquiry and likewise every action and choice seems to aim at some good. And hence it has been beautifully said that the good is that at which all things aim. We want to hit the highest good. And I want you guys to hit the highest good. And you've been created unto good works. And the highest good is not wealth. The highest good is not, is not pleasure. The highest good is not honor. The highest good is happiness. And God has created you to operate in the context for which he was made. And we call something good if it's operating in the context for which God made it. When you make a cup, you make a cup to hold water. And when it's holding water, it's a good cup. Yeah? Which one of these is a good cup? Happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and the end of human existence. That is the idea of happiness. That's why our founders put it in here. That's why the psalmist said, oh, how happy is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of the sinner, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And upon that law, he meditates day and night. And the beauty of it is, this happiness doesn't consist in pastimes and pleasure and all those things that are frivolous, amusements, but it exists, happiness exists in virtuous activities. Doing, listen, doing, pay attention, doing the right thing. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. He delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by streams of living water that produces its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does shall prosper. All those things will be added unto you, but don't, you go, okay, so if I pursue the Lord, I'll get these things? You're already screwing it up. It's, I love the Lord. Wait, what? I get that? Lord, all I wanted was you. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart because he's gonna be the desire of your heart. Happiness is a quality of the soul, not a function of one's material circumstances. You don't have to be rich to be happy. You can be in pain and be happy. You can be sick and be happy. You can have nobody acknowledge you and still be happy because you're right with God. And that'll last you all the days of your life. Seek first his kingdom, honor the Lord. If we run after the other goods, the wealth and the pleasure and the honor, we get in trouble. Timothy says in the passage that we had memorized, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbors, yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. But if you fall in love with money and pursue the good of wealth over anything else, you, you will realize that that is the root of all kinds of evil and you are in trouble and so are your kids if that's the example you're setting. For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Eat, drink, and be merry. 
If pleasure is your pursuit and you raise your children in that capacity, it's dangerous. The Proverbs say, he who loves pleasure will be a poor man and he who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Pleasure is dangerous if that's all you're pursuing is pleasure. You know what, I just wanna be happy. And happiness for me is not having any worries. I just want to be surrounded by people who don't contend with me. And I just want you to shut up because I don't like to listen to you when you speak. <laughs> I just want to be around people that just agree with me all the time. And I want to masseuse every morning and every evening. And then I'm going to be happy. No, you won't. You'll be like, I don't want another massage. I don't even, I don't exercise. I don't have anything that aches. <laughs> it gets dull. Where's happiness found? Hashed, blessed. Oh, how happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of ungodly. And we went through this, but look at this. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And I I think about that. The ungodly are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Your whole life is about your wealth. Your whole life is about honor. Your whole life is about pleasure. You've lived for it. You've amassed a fortune. And you've got more, a, a bigger dirt pile than anybody else. Good for you. Good for you, and you've gotten to the top over all the dead bodies, and you've pursued it, and you, you are going to slide into home, and you, you've gotten every ounce of living out of that body, and you'll have injected it, and you'll have engulfed it with alcohol and whatever else it is, and you won't withhold anything, and it is a, it's a fun life. And then your kung fu grip is going to let go of your possessions, and your body's going to just decompose, and all that was yours is just chaff that the wind blows away into your neighbor's yard. And you go, no, 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 no. I'm going to amass a fortune and leave it to you. You don't leave nothing. Nothing. You have no control over it. You're dead. There's no substance to your life. And they won't remember you anymore. All they want is what you had. And all your kids were raised for pleasure and they don't give a flip about you. And they're just going to transfer it. And they're going to live the same way you lived. And the culture is just imploding because we don't instruct them on the highest good, which is happiness. And happiness is virtue aligned with God. You know what? Happiness is hard. It's difficult. Happiness is hard. It requires character. Character is etching. Character is choices every day to establish that character. You're not going to be a doctor sitting in front of the television set. If you don't want to learn how to read, you're never going to be of value. And you're going to be duped by everyone who comes along. And reading, you have to learn. You have to to front load that. You got to do your homework. You have to discipline and buffet your body. Bring it in alignment with the Lord. It's hard. Proverbs says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor detest his correction for whom the Lord loves, he corrects just as the father, the son in whom he delights. And the Lord corrects us. When we're out of alignment with him and we're running after the baubles and the trinkets of the pleasure and the wealth and the honor, he allows us to see that the laws of nature and nature's God will align us to realize that there's nothing there. Our economy will implode. 
will be a, 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 a slave to the lender. Our bodies will begin to break down. Diabetes will impact our culture. And God is saying, wake up. Wake up, I'm over here. Virtue and happiness are found in me. In him is the fullness of joy. I'm over here. And you know what happens when you're operating outside the context of God? You get chastened. He, he chastens you. And you go, that's not me. Why, why is God doing this to me? He doesn't hate you. He loves you. Just like a, a parent loves a child. When you go to put the fork in the light socket, and as you're going to put it in there, the mom slaps the baby's hand and says, no. And they go, you hurt my hand. I know. But had you, been, had you done that, you would be glowing, and I'd be resuscitating you right now. Don't do that. Honor your mother and father. It'll go well with you. You'll live long on the earth. God chastens those he loves. And he brings us into alignment. That is not where you're supposed to be. Look unto me, the author and finisher of your faith, the Lord says. Look to the Lord. Seek first his kingdom. That's virtue. That's happiness. And this discipline is critical if you want to raise good children. Maybe some of you, you know, spank or flick, or use a timeout chair. Maybe some of you don't do anything. I want to meet your kids. <laughs> but you look at a timeout chair, and, the, and, and we used to have one of those. Michelle and I used to have a timeout chair, and, and Molly, who's sweet, you saw her up here, and she's a great mom and a great wife and a and wonderful sister and, and daughter, and she's just remarkable. Growing up, she was tough. You'd spank her, and she'd just look at you like, is that all you got? I'm like, no, I got more. My hand would hurt. She's like, that, that, is that all you got? <clears throat> now she's super sweet. Daniel, on the other hand, our other kid, Daniel, you know, I'd, I'd go into his room and he'd be sitting in his timeout chair. I'd go, Michelle, did, did you send him to, no, I didn't. Well, he's in his chair. We'd go in, why are you in your chair, son? Um, I just felt like I, the way I spoke to mom wasn't acceptable. And I, <laughs> Then you got to be a teenager and that changed, but that never <laughs> Happy is a man who finds wisdom. Say it with me. The idea is simply that you find wisdom. Knowledge is the accumulation of facts. Wisdom is the application of those facts for the glory of God. You align yourself with the Lord. You take in all of his creation. You see how we operate under the laws of nature and nature's God and we honor God. And in finding that wisdom, how to apply these truths that we have front-loaded and disciplined ourselves, all of a sudden the culture flourishes. We lay out this law as it says in Galatians 3 that the law is a school teacher to point people to Christ. We start to say that, that this law keeps us in, in protection until faith comes. And all of the community starts to see these things that we've established. But it's hard. You have to contend for them. The, the, I, I get this all over the country. I don't do politics. I get it from every pulpit. And my, and my response is, oh, okay, so what you're telling me is you don't care about your, your children in the community, their future. You don't care what they're being educated. You don't, you don't care about the property rights of anyone in your community. You don't care about any of that. You don't want to participate because politics is hard. That's what we do. Politics is the highest form of community. It concludes morality and sociability. This is what we do. And when we instruct our children and we involve ourselves in their lives and in the community in which they live and we pursue happiness as a nation like our founders directed us to, understanding that this is a principle from scripture, it's the highest form of good, virtue, happiness. 
You train up a child in the way that they should go. When they're old, they won't depart thereof. And the way you train them is through your education. And we contend for that. And we fight for all of the children for that sake. Instead of just sit idly by while all this garbage is pushed into the heads of our kids. And if we don't front load our children and teach them that blessing comes by walking not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sit standing in the path of the sinners, nor sitting in the seat of the scornful, but delighting ourselves in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night and educating them and, and, and teaching them to read that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God in the very first public school act, the old Satan Eluder Act by our founders was that sole purpose that our children wouldn't be fodder for stupidity. And if we don't, If we don't, and we teach them to run after wealth and to run after pleasure and to run after honor and go to the least common denominator and just sin comes easy and don't show them barriers and applying restraints in order to pursue excellence, and we do none of that, it's not going to be a a doctor with with his graduating hat going on to do brain surgery. You're going to have an alcoholic because you just, you 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 go and you make connections and you party and then you go make money. And there's no, there's no morality, there, there's, there's, there's no wisdom, there's no happiness. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. It's hard. We've got to instill character. You've got to do the hard thing. We've got to, as parents and as community members, to participate in the life of our community in every aspect to bring happiness. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And character's hard. I, I want to be a gold medal athlete. I, I can't wait. I want to stand on the podium with that gold medal around my neck. Well, good. Then tomorrow morning, you're getting up at 4 a.m., and you're going to swim. I don't want to do that. I just want the gold medal. I want people to honor me. I'm sure you do, but it's going to require character. Character is going to require discipline, perseverance. Yeah, but that's hard. Yeah, but there's no happiness otherwise. In a fallen world, every day we make choices. We either honor him or we don't. Choose this day whom you'll serve. He is happy who lives in accordance with complete virtue and is sufficiently equipped with external goods, not for some chance period, but throughout a complete life. This requires us to make choices, some of which may be very difficult. Often the lesser good promises immediate pleasure and is more tempting, while the greater good is painful and requires some sort of sacrifice. Listen, heroin is easy to inject, and it feels good. And then you lose your family. The harder good, especially if you're coming off it, is every day you die a thousand deaths and it's a white knuckle ride, but you got a family you're gonna care for and a God who loves you and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you and you hold on. You hold on because there's a community that needs you and children looking to you and God has called you and the highest form of good is to operate in the context for which he designed you and that's good works to glorify your father in heaven. And you do those hard things. Make your bed. Clean your room. Help with the dishes. Do your homework. Read your Bible. You do those things. It's hard. Pleasure's easy. Pleasure's easy. You'll be poor. Wealth is harder. But to go for just wealth, you'll never get honor. 
unless you buy it, and then it's not real. And you're empty, because you know it's a lie. You need to do what's hard. Study to show yourself approved unto God, workmen and women who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I'm almost concluded here. This is Andreas Kostenberger, and I like what he said. He said, at my conversion, when I was gripped by a realization of the utter excellence of God, I was impressed by the fact that because God is excellent in every way, everything I do for him ought to be characterized by excellence. This, to me, is what it means to bring glory to God, to do everything I do for him with excellence. We should do that in our community and everywhere else. A Christian approach to excellence which produces happiness must start with the excellence of God. On this theological foundation, we must understand our own called excellence, which entails the pursuit of virtue, which brings happiness, such as diligence, courage, passion, restraint, integrity, humility, interdependence, and love. And that comes out of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful. God wants us to work hard. He wants us to do it right. He wants us to engage. He wants us to pursue happiness. Because happy is the man who finds wisdom. Say it with me. Now you know why happiness is of critical importance. You want to be happy? Find wisdom. What is wisdom? Taking the knowledge and applying it to the glory of God. Aligning yourself with his purposes. Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. All that other stuff will come. This is of critical importance. Your life with God. Do the right thing and do it well. And God will bless you and you will be happy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.